rated sermon, so just be aware of that. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. We will be for the next few weeks. 1 Corinthians 7 is all about married life and single life. Paul gets down to brass tacks about it. So this is what I read one day, and please don't tell me that I have to remain celibate for the rest of my life. That was from a doctor who had read my column out in California and had sent me a a column about same-sex marriage and sent me an email in response, and we corresponded for a while back and forth together. Uh, The doctor was uh, thoughtful, obviously intelligent, expressed a lot of grace, She was also a lesbian who described herself as a red-letter Christian, a person who values the words of Jesus but doesn't appreciate the rest of the Bible so much, and especially that pesky fellow Paul. Now, the reason I mention her is that this intelligent, thoughtful, articulate doctor was totally a woman of our times. She could only imagine the celibate life as unbearably happy, unhappy, and horribly unfair. She probably didn't remember that Jesus, whom she admired so much, was celibate, as was that pesky fellow Paul. And she was probably unaware of all the other people who've remained celibate while living extraordinary lives, like St. Francis, Mother Teresa, Henry Nouwen. Now, if you say... Yeah, you just mentioned a monk, a nun, and a priest, so that doesn't really count. Well, there are others. I mean, one of our presidents, President Buchanan, was celibate. Uh, Isaac Newton was. Uh, Nikola Tesla, that weird and famous scientist, remained uh, celibate. C.S. Lewis was celibate for decades. More recently, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Miller, Shane Claiborne, the actors Taylor Lautner, Tina Fey, who remained celibate until she was married, as well as athletes like Tim Tebow and Michael Redd and many others. But my friend the doctor couldn't imagine a life where she would remain celibate. And that's because she, like all the rest of us, are immersed in a culture where it's unimaginable to deny oneself deeply held personal desires. That just seems abnormal, even unhealthy to people. But historically, celibacy comes and goes in and out of favor. Did you know that? In the early 20th century, there's a celibacy movement in England and elsewhere. As recently as the 1980s, there was a celibacy movement in the United States. And among some New Age religions, celibacy is seen as a way of attaining a deeper and richer spirituality. From what we read in today's text, there was a celibacy movement in the church in Corinth in the first century. The Corinthians, just like people in New Age religions today, thought that they could reach a higher spiritual plane by practicing celibacy. And that teaching was going around the Corinthian church. And some of the people who were taking that teaching to heart, here's the thing, some of the people who were taking that teaching to heart were married. Wives were refusing to give themselves to their husbands, citing spiritual reasons. And perhaps some husbands were turning away from their wives on the same basis. So the people of the church wrote Paul. This is the letter we mentioned a week or two ago. They wrote Paul and they asked him about it, along with several other questions about marriage and singleness. After all, he was celibate. So what was his take on this whole thing? 
And in chapter 7, Paul answers this and other questions regarding marriage. In fact, today's text is the first of six responses here in seven, chapter 7, verse 25, 8-1, 12-1, 16-1, 16-12. the first of six responses to the Corinthians letter. So let's read it. It's 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read the first seven verses. I had hoped to get through the first 16 verses until I really started working on this text, and there's just no way. So we're going to take the first seven verses. I will be reading it out of the NIV 2011, which will be on the screens for us. I'm reading it out of the 2011 because I think their translation of this passage is an improvement on the NIV 84's translation. So here it is. Now for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. A year or two ago, Kevin was teaching through 1 Corinthians, and he came over to the house one day and he said, I just feels like we're never going to get through the sex passages in 1 Corinthians, and now I know what he means. It seems like week after week, we're back here in chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. In chapter 7, Paul's going to go on and address concerns regarding unmarried people. The divorced, the widowed, the never married. But before he does that, he needs to say something to married couples about the most intimate aspect of their lives. The NIV 84 translates that first verse, and this is one of the main reasons I chose not to use it. Now, for that, the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. Now, there are two problems with that translation that will, in fact, how we affect how we read the entire passage. So we need to talk about it right up front. First, it's hard to understand how they came up with that translation, it's good for a man not to marry. The scholar G.D. Fee puts it bluntly, there is no evidence to support this translation. What the original language says literally is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. To touch a woman was a widely used euphemism, it's all over ancient Greek literature, for having sex. We have our polite ways, our euphemisms for saying it. We say they're sleeping together, and everyone knows what we mean. But a first century Greek speaker, if he heard you say they're sleeping together, he would wonder what you were talking about. Why are they doing that? The Greek said, you know, he's touching her, and it meant the same thing. To put it bluntly, this verse is about sex. It is not about getting married. So that's one problem with the 84 translation. The other is this. They translate this statement as if it originated with Paul. They have Paul saying it's better not to get married or better not to have sex, but that doesn't fit what he's about to say in the next few verses. 
It makes more sense to take this line as the 2011 NIV does and almost every other recent translation as an introduction in which Paul quotes the Corinthians letter. It's better not to have sex was their line, not his. That's what some of the teachers were saying around Corinth, and the Corinthians wanted to know what Paul thought of it. Did he agree with that? Paul's a celibate, so what does he think? Will God be more pleased with me if I choose celibacy? Will I be able to reach a higher spiritual plane? Will I experience more of the richness of his spirit? So that's how I, and more importantly, the most biblical scholars take this. Paul writes, now for the matters you wrote about, and the first of those matters was celibacy. Now, that subject is a minefield, and Paul knew that. He had to pick his way carefully to avoid being misunderstood. If he wasn't careful, wives would be telling their husbands, well, the apostle Paul says it's better that we don't have sex. Or just the opposite, unmarried people would be saying, well, why shouldn't we? Even the apostle Paul, who's celibate, says that you won't be any more spiritual by abstaining from sex. So Paul chooses his words here very carefully. Since sexual immorality is occurring, now remember what we saw last week? Some people were going to prostitutes who were numerous and cheap in Corinth and arguing that what they did was nobody else's business. And it seems that some, for lack of a better word, super spiritual wives were making matters worse by telling their husbands that from now on they were going to abstain from sex out of devotion to the Lord. So Paul says, since sexual immorality is occurring... Not since it might occur, not to prevent it from occurring in the future, but since it's happening right now in the church because of porneia in Greek, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now let's stop for a moment. That verse has traditionally been read as though it means each man should get a wife for himself, and each woman should get a husband for herself in order to avoid sexual temptation. That is not what it says, and that's not what it means. Paul is not saying that single people should rush out and get married because being unmarried is a bad thing. And we're going to see much more about that later in this chapter. He is saying that married people should have their spouses in the full biblical sense of the word. Remember, Paul's not addressing singles here. He'll do that starting in verse 8. Here he's talking to married people. They should have each other in the sense of have marital relations with each other. Apparently some of them, and especially some of the women that scholars refer to as eschatological women, had decided that abstaining from marital relations would advance them spiritually. And you know, if it would, if it honored God and blessed his church, Paul would have said, absolutely. That's a great idea. I commend you for it. But that's not what he says. He says, if you're married, you should be having sex with each other. And then he explains what he means in the next few verses. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Paul's wording suggests that married partners owe it to each other to have a good sex life. You heard it here. A word-for-word literal translation goes like this. To the wife, a husband should give back what he owes, and likewise the wife 
to the husband. And notice the mutuality of this. He's addressing both husband and wife. In verse 4, Paul goes even further. In fact, he goes where no man had gone before. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it. In Greek, it's obvious that what she's yielding is not her body, but the authority over her body. Yields the authority to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it, the authority, to his wife. Now, a first century reader and many 21st century readers would have completely agreed with the first sentence in that verse, that the husband had authority over his wife's body. That was even part of Roman law. The second sentence, however, stating that the husband does not have authority over his own body, but that his wife does, was totally radical. See, everything's different over here. It's very different for men and women who are in Christ. Not because the church has a bunch of rules, but because Jesus changes everything. He changes our hearts. And let me pause right there for, for a theological slash sociological parentheses. Paul uses this language of mutuality 12 times, starting right here. The husband to the wife, the wife to the husband. Many feminists have pictured Paul as a thoroughgoing, narrow-minded misogynist, but they have read Paul without any historical insight. Or more likely, they've never read Paul at all. They've just read what other people have said about Paul, or said about the Bible, or said about the church. What Paul writes in this passage was revolutionary. The freedoms he recognized for women in the church were unheard of in both Jewish and Gentile societies. When this letter was first read, people I can guarantee you they were surprised. And if non-Christians were present, they probably went home and banned their wives from ever attending church again. You're not going to church. I don't want them telling you that kind of stuff. The idea that a woman would have authority over her husband's body, it was outrageous. Now, verse 5. Do not deprive each other, which could and probably should be translated, stop depriving, or better yet, defrauding or cheating each other. You know, in America, we say she cheated on him. That means that she found another guy and committed adultery. But Paul would say you cheat on each other by not giving yourself to your spouse because you're angry, because you want to make things change. He would say you're cheating. You're defrauding. This is not a warning against something that might happen. It's a command to stop doing something that was happening. These married people were withholding sex from each other, and it wasn't because they thought, oh, we're too old, or we're too tired. It's because they thought they were too spiritual. So Paul says, stop it. Just stop it. Though he does offer an exception. But look how tentatively he suggests it. Except perhaps, and in Greek it's even better. In Greek there are three tentative words. Except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There may be times when you agree to abstain from marital relations for the purpose of concerted prayer. By the way, you know what that suggests? That married people talk to each other. that they talk about these things. But even here, Paul is not saying that there should be such times when they abstain, only that there 
might be such times when it's appropriate. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That lack of self-control was sending men to Corinthian brothels. And because of what was going on at home, they felt justified in doing it. But Paul will have none of it. Each man should have his own wife, and each wife should have her own husband. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now, if you get the first verse wrong, which I think the NIV did, and I think much more importantly, the editors of the 2011 NIV thought they got it wrong, you'll get verse 6 wrong too. You think that Paul is granting a concession to the Corinthians to go ahead and have sexual relations. Okay, I'll concede you can have sex. Though he really wished they wouldn't. That is not the way this paragraph is structured. The concession is that they can abstain from sexual relations within marriage for a short time for a specific purpose, to engage in concerted prayer. In other words, the concession is not that they can have sex, but that under circumstances, some circumstances, they can refrain from it. That's not what you expected, is it? In their letter, the Corinthians had asked Paul his opinion. Is sexual abstinence in marriage a good thing that will lead to a richer experience of God's spirit? Paul's answer was, absolutely not. Look, you've already got a problem with husbands going to the brothels, and you're making it worse by trying to be super spiritual. So stop defrauding each other the way that you're doing. If you're going to abstain, okay, but do it by agreement and only for a definite period of time so that you can pray. Now, that wouldn't be a problem, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, if all of you were like me. Paul was unmarried. And by the way, we don't know if he had been married and was widowed. We don't know if his wife had divorced him when he became a Christian. Wives in, in, in Judaism could not divorce their husband except if their husband became a heretic or engaged in one of the seven disgusting trades. Paul had become a heretic. So that could have been, or Paul may never have been married. The Bible simply doesn't tell us. But if you were all like me, Paul says, this wouldn't even be an issue. But you're not. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has that. Notice that Paul sees himself as gifted by God to live the unmarried life. God has graced him to live single and to do it with moral purity. Other people, Paul understands, have been gifted to live the married life and to do it in moral purity. We run into big problems when people who are gifted to live the single life feel compelled to get married because of cultural pressures. And when people who are gifted to live the married life are forced into singleness. Now, this passage is going to have a lot more to say about the single life. And it's just as surprising as what Paul says about the married life. And we're going to get to that in the next weeks. But for now, let me just say this until we get there. In our culture, it's taken for granted that people who are not married are missing out. Singleness is looked at as if it were a kind of failure. But Paul, and more importantly, Jesus himself did not think so. They honored the single life. 
They lived the single life. They upheld the single life as an opportunity to serve God in special ways. Singleness is a beautiful thing when a person is devoted to God. It's a dreadful thing, as is married life, when a person is devoted to selfishness. But as I say, Paul's going to get into that in in the coming paragraphs, and we'll get into it with him. Here he was writing to us married folk. So what can we learn? How can we apply this? First of all, it is a bad thing to be super spiritual. Let me just repeat that. It is a bad thing to be super spiritual. It always leads to trouble. Always, and usually along the path of hypocrisy. Don't try to be super spiritual. Try to be fully committed. There is a huge difference. You'll never become fully committed to Christ by trying to be spiritual. You will become appropriately spiritual by being fully committed to Christ. We also learn here that Christian marriage is unlike other kinds of marriage. Christian marriage is not about what you can get. It's about what you can give. Christian marriage is not a 50-50 deal. Still less is it an exercise in advocating one's rights. In Christian marriage, the wife has authority over her husband's body. And she's going to answer to God for what she does with that authority. And the husband has authority over his wife's body. And he's going to answer to God for what he does with that authority. See, God designed it this way. It's really brilliant. He designed it this way so that by giving ourselves wholeheartedly to each other and trusting each other, that's required, trusting each other, we would learn how to give ourselves wholeheartedly to him and trust him. See, marriage was designed not just and not even primarily for our happiness, but for our holiness. And if that isn't countercultural, I don't know what is. So, application. Today's application is limited to those of us who are Christians and who are married. So if you're not a Christian or you're not married, this doesn't apply to you, but be patient a couple weeks. We'll have plenty of application for you. We're going to... Paul doesn't leave anybody out in this chapter. So Christians who are married to Christians, Christians who are married to non-Christians, Christians who are divorced, Christians who are single and have never been married, Christians who are widowed. He deals with everybody. If you're married to a Christ follower, if you're a Christ follower and you're married to a Christ follower, try this. Here's the application. Say to your spouse, I recognize and submit to your authority over my body. In fact, if your spouse is sitting next to you, you can do that right now. Just lean over and say, I recognize and submit to your authority over my body. Hey, it's biblical. But if you say it, you better be ready to make good on it. Don't default on this. Is it scary? Probably. What if he wants sex all the time? Or worse, 
What if she wants me to diet and exercise? But here's what I think will happen. If you acknowledge that your Christian spouse has authority over your body, he or she will probably respond by taking better care of your body than you ever could. And if he or she doesn't do that, if he or she takes advantage of the situation, there will be a day of reckoning. God will get involved because while he delegates authority over his children's bodies to a spouse, he does not relinquish ownership. Remember, he bought us at a price, the highest price imaginable. Your spouse, if you're a Christian today, and she's a Christian or he's a Christian, is his beloved child, and he will not have us forget it. All right, let's pray. God, this is a challenge to us. And we need to see more and ask to see more of what it means for us to live lives as your holy, devoted followers with each other, with our spouses. We want to do it well. We want to do it in a way that causes other people to see and desire what we have to see and desire you. So Lord, help us in this. Help us to trust you and go ahead and take risks and live that life that you've called us to live for Jesus' sake.